So tonight I'll talk uh, about the truth. <laughs> yeah, you can roll your eyes. Yeah, even just saying it sounds sounds a little bit strange. What comes up for me is <clears throat> as if there were a truth or as if I had it and someone else didn't or even as if the Buddha had it and some other teacher didn't have it. And, and when those notions come up, truth is already really tricky and complicated and political and And, and as many of you know, we, we do see sometimes that truth is written with a capital T. So this is like the real truth, uh, maybe, whatever that is. So not alternative facts. <laughs> so not alternative facts. Right, right. <coughs> and one of the questions that I find interesting that comes up for me when I think about Buddhist teachings and, and Buddhist psychology and philosophy, the ideas that are presented for exploration um, is this relationship between truth with a capital T, if you will, and the strong invitation and I would say requirement that we all turn to look at our own experience and discern what's real or true. So how do you even how do you reconcile that, right? As a as a practitioner, how do we do that individually? So it's it's from it's it's sometimes from these um, <coughs> sort of experiential <coughs> these experiential and in in philosophical and intellectual incongruities or, or tensions that these talks come from and as you'll see this talk isn't um, it's it's not finished right my ideas around this aren't finished this is um, an ongoing inquiry and so I'm uh, trying to find a way of sharing that with you and inviting you into that and, and hopefully inviting you into your own relationship or ongoing relationship with this with this teaching, with this idea, with this discernment. So I'd like to the degree that we, we can and, and to the degree that I can facilitate, talk about the concept of truth in a way that's accessible and practical, maybe in a sense functional, um, and, and also relatable and personal to, hopefully. I will try to uh, explicitly uh, reference some Buddhist ideas and so uh, share some possibilities of what truth might be if considered uh, a Buddhist idea or teaching. And then, and I may have already done this, but I want to be sure that I'm acknowledging that this idea of truth, lowercase t or uppercase t, to some of us, or 
or sometimes can be really compelling and it can, it can, it can pull us in, uh, particularly if the working definition we have of truth indicates that maybe if we had it, we would suffer less. And then uh, for the reasons, some of the reasons that I was explaining uh, a moment ago, this idea of truth, a discussion of truth, might have us backpedaling and say, well, wait a minute. Because it can so easily start to sound uh, authoritative or dogmatic or religious or, you know, something else that feels like it could quickly become divisive or oppressive. And, um, and this, this idea of truth has been handed down for 20, roughly, give or take, 26 hundred years, and um, it's, it's appropriate, of course, to really scrutinize uh, truths that have been handed down from generation to generation. That's one of the um, most important things that our generation will, will do in the world. Right? So to begin, I want to just put a few terms out there, that, that most of which, most of them uh, you will be familiar with. And the, the first term is, is dharma, which is uh, dharma in Sanskrit or, or dhamma, D-H-A-M-M-A in Pali. So dharma uh, and dhamma, which is sometimes translated as the truth, right? So um, this, this dharma path that we're on or we're curious about and we're checking out um, whatever it is, uh, is is said to move us toward the truth. Dharma is also translated as um, the Buddhist teachings or the word of the Buddha or the teachings of the Buddha. So the, the teachings of the Buddha move us <coughs> toward the truth. They bring us closer to the truth. And then we have Buddha Dharma, um, one word, Buddha Dharma, and that's always explicitly the teachings of the Buddha or the Buddhist teachings. Right? So Buddha's truth, Buddha Dharma, if Dharma means truth. There's a, there's a, there's a term that comes uh, more from the uh, yoga lineage, uh, Swadharma, which uh, I talk about with some uh, regularity, uh, swadharma one's own way or what's true for an in individual, uh, what's right for an individual. Dharma, again, true, and swa, S-V-A or S-W-A, um, self, what's true for oneself. And we have the four noble truths, which really is the core uh, foundational set of teachings for the whole tradition. Right? So, there's, so there's four truths, um, and they're noble. <laughs> and, and they're noble because they have the ability to help us suffer less. They're noble because they have the ability to help us suffer less. 
So the Four Noble Truths then are inseparable uh, from wisdom. Right? And it's this wisdom supposedly that's going to liberate us. We're going to experience less dukkha, which is the first noble truth, suffering, right? Because we're going to know and understand the cause of suffering, tanha, this is the second noble truth. And this is going to allow us to have experiences, uh, more sustained experiences and maybe even more frequent experiences of not suffering, not being under distress. And if that's the case, then we'll have we'll be experiencing more often uh, equanimity or contentment or joy or happiness. And in, in in, when we use words like joy and happiness, we're not pointing <coughs> to a kind of well-being that comes because we got a good grade or we earned some extra money or somebody said something nice about us. Or, um, but rather, it's just a it's a, it's it's a very internal, a kind of basic organic, natural, uh, latent something that comes forward and we realize, uh, oh, this is actually my, my true nature. This is always available. Right? Um. So it's, it's, this, it's this correlation uh, that they are noble these truths because they give us an end to suffering that gives us a glimpse into the Buddhist uh, idea of truth so we can start to, this is a way into thinking about it or, or, or grappling with it. Now I'll, 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 I'll go a little further in, in, in trying to talk about uh, truth in Buddhism, okay, just, just briefly. One thing that I think we can say is that truth conveys a type of observable lawfulness. Okay, an observable lawfulness. The Buddha is interested in how things worked. Okay? So, what will happen if I let go of this pen? It's actually a pencil. Because I have a little bit of OCD, and if I write in a pen and I don't like the way it looks, I'm stuck with it. So I always have a pencil, and I never write with a pen, unless I'm writing a check. Little side note. (laughs) Meditation doesn't fix everything. (laughs) But it's made my OCD better, or easier to deal with. Unless you live with me, <laughs> which you would never want to do. What will happen if I drop this? It'll, it'll hit the floor. Okay. So that's a law. That's a objective, a pretty objective. We probably, we're not going to get in a big argument about that. Okay, is it going to fall again? Yeah, so we don't even need to do this, right? So that's, that's a law. Um, We'll leave, it, we'll leave it at that for now. So, in Buddhism, right, what is true is not something that can be defended necessarily with logic or more refined ideas, but can only be known experientially, okay? So when we start to talk about a truth that conveys some wisdom around our psychology or how our mind works, 
we can really only arrive there experientially. What is true according to the Dharma would be that which is more accurate or closer to reality than most of our thoughts, most, not all, um, most of our ideas, concepts, and beliefs. That there is a truth that we don't yet fully see or understand suggests that our perceptions, how we see, the very ways that we see and understand the world are not as accurate as they could be. So it's just like some improvement is here for all of us. Therefore, those perceptions are not as true, not as representative of reality as they could be. Okay? So you can take this all on as a maybe, like, okay, maybe. Remember, the Buddha asked us to check all of this, particularly these ideas, you know, um, in our own experience. So the, I want to read a short passage attributed to the Buddha. Practitioners, meditators, yogis, those who are interested in exploring these teachings and practicing meditation. So he's, he's addressing a group. It is through not realizing, through not penetrating the Four Noble Truths that this long course of birth and death, this, this cycle of suffering that we all live in, from one perspective, from lifetime to lifetime, but you can also think of this just from moment to moment. Like, you know, um, there was some suffering yesterday around something, some, and there was some suffering today around something, some stress or anxiety. So, so um, suffering cycles in our lives, doesn't it, right? It continue, we continue to suffer. Through not penetrating the Four Noble Truths that this long course of birth and death has been passed through and undergone by me as well as by you, what are these four? They are the Noble Truth of Dukkha, suffering or dissatisfaction, the noble truth of the origin of dukkha, the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha, and the noble truth of the way to the cessation of dukkha. But now, practitioners, that these have been realized and penetrated, cut off is the craving for existence, for grasping. Destroyed is that which leads to renewed becoming, which is further suffering. And there is no fresh becoming, So, um, suffering has been extinguished. So this is pointing to a possibility. Has anybody looked at this new book that's popular, Why Buddhism is True? Anybody see this book around? I heard a a podcast. Oh, you heard a podcast. Okay. The author is, his name is Robert, uh, Robert, excuse me, Robert Wright. And he says, one big lesson from Buddhism is to be suspicious of the intuition that your ordinary way of perceiving the world brings you the truth about it. 
Has anybody experienced that in their own meditation or just their own journey in life that, oh yeah, sometimes my, and in perceptions that you've held for a really long time, right? And you've imposed those perceptions on others um, and not been as skillful in those relationships. And you've imposed, and we might, you know, impose those uh, perceptions on ourselves and not been so kind or skillful to ourselves, right? One big lesson from Buddhism is to be suspicious of the intuition that your ordinary way of perceiving the world brings you the truth about it. I've been thinking a lot about what accountability is and what it means and why it's important on this path and why it's so hard for some people. And I I think one of the reasons why it's so hard for people is because, um, I'll say it this way, accountability can be hard uh, when we haven't fully acknowledged that a lot of our perceptions are not as accurate as they could be. And once we see that our perceptions are not as accurate as they can be, and we have some combination or some, capa- some combination of, of equanimity or kindness and capacity to bring that forward, then, then we can really start to look at ourselves and examine our thoughts and our behaviors. And oh, like, it's not so personal. Okay. You know, it's like the what's the what's the cliche that uh, that in Buddhist circles that my mind is not my fault, but it is my responsibility. Like my habits are not my they were cre- they were created in very complex ways. So I don't have to be I don't have to be cruel to myself because I have this limitation or I was unskillful in this you know in this email or that dinner date or whatever. But I do have a, resp- I have a responsibility um, to see if I can do it better. I guess what I'm saying is that doing it better has us dealing closer to the truth of things, if you will. And, and I know that there's, uh, that still has a lot of ambiguity in it. But I'm, right? So stay with me. Let's see where we go. So... Buddhism and meditation practice deal with a host, a whole variety of illusory views that we have inherited. Okay? Not even not our fault. And which shapes our worldview as well as our behaviors and plays a role in generating dukkha or suffering. Okay, so now illusions I mentioned illusions a few times. Now illusions are anything we take to be true, but of course are not. Anything we take to be true, but is not as an illusion. So some illusions that govern our behavior are known to us, and others are not, and they're unconscious. And a lot of our unconscious illusions are what cause difficulty for us and others with whom we come in contact with. And, and when, we're, when, when, when we're in the context of difficult encounters chronically with someone else, we can assume, oh, there's an illusion at play. For that. So I tried to think of some basic illusions. And as I share this little working list with you, just just think of what your own illusions are. We we have many, right? So one illusion is, for example, that drinking is a good way to alleviate stress. 
And some people would argue that it is, and in fact, some research says that it is. And uh, for many or most people, uh, non-addicts and addicts, if you had a drink, you might temporarily feel a reduction in stress. Totally true, right? We could say it's not true, right? If we're interested in the alleviation of suffering and conditioning, right? If a drink temporarily alleviates stress or anything else, eating or a drug or fill in the blank, um, but it doesn't in the end accomplish what we're looking for, it's an illusion. Right, it's tricking. We're being tricked. How many people have been tricked by alcohol? Right. Of course. Of course. Okay. So, let's say we have a drink. We feel good, or there's a there's a reduction in stress. Um, at a certain point, uh, we've lost that temporary state. And so we need to do something different, or maybe, maybe, we, maybe we'll have another drink, right? And so you can, see where this is, you, you can see where this is going. If our activity or way of relating to something doesn't properly address the habit energy or the underlying um, driver behind the behavior, then nothing changes in the long run. Another illusion. If close, for example, intimate relationships, uh, this will be familiar for some people, if close intimate relationships are uncomfortable or unsafe for us, we might assume that avoiding closeness and connection is also good for us. Uh, in some cases, it is good for us, uh, uh, particularly during certain times, but as a general rule, um, as a chronic pattern or habit, it's not good for most of us all of the time, right? Because there are certain important needs, A, that are hard to meet outside of the relationship. And furthermore, the choice to avoid what is uncomfortable, anything that's uncomfortable, is also an avoidance of the situations where we can grow and change and find new ways of expanding in our life opening to more opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. New ways of being happy, right? Another example, um, and you can maybe see this in your own meditation practice, uh, we are often in our practice thinking about the past or the future. This is one of the things we learn early on also, we learned that 99.99999% of our thoughts are all about us. What am I going to get? What am I going to get rid of? Um, who am I going to beat or win over? Or it's like it's all, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's all survival, getting ahead, being okay, suffering less, being happier, um, getting more needs met, getting more wants met. Me, 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 me. Right? And if we look, a lot of those thoughts are grouped around the past, and a lot of those are, thoughts are oriented toward the future. Now, we might notice that these thoughts have feelings connected to them. Jealousy, anger, worry, 
self-loathing. It's not really a feeling, but kind of, kind of it evokes feelings. Um, fear, regret, etc., etc. In that we tend to operate on the belief that by thinking about life matters over and over and over again, we're somehow going to feel better. We're somehow going to find a way of removing the difficult emotions associated with the thoughts. It's like an addiction. We can't, we can't stop. Though, what we learn in meditation is that the continual involvement called identification typically exacerbates the same feelings, creates more uncomfortable feelings, and builds an underlying foundation of stress and anxiety. So the illusion here is that if we just think it through a little bit more, we'll be okay, we'll be better. An all-encompassing example is the persistent illusory view that our well-being is largely determined by things outside of ourself. Our well-being is partly and sometimes significantly determined by things outside of ourselves. But the degree to which we wait the idea and the possibility and the hope that by getting other people to be the way we want them or to stop doing the things we want them to stop doing, it will finally be okay is a problem for us. And while we need to stay engaged, for a variety of reasons, we need to stay engaged with those conversations and questions, we also have to realize or we will benefit from realizing that there's a lot we can shift internally. And then, of course, the, the core dilemma, the core illusion that the Buddhist tradition attempts to deal with and resolve is the idea or illusion that we are a solid, independent um, entity or self, right, that stands apart from others, that is uh, durable and long-lasting in fundamentally independent. So, if illusions are views that aren't true, uh, what is true and how can, we, how can we recognize this? Because really, if, 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 if you entertain the way I'm talking about this tonight, it might start to sound like Mostly everything's an illusion, and none of us really have any idea what the truth is, right? So, my thoughts right now sound something like this. What is true is what is right, okay? What is true is what is right if right means consistent with reality, or how things work. Now we need a way to gauge this. The way we gauge this is by investigating the outcomes of choices. The critical variable is the level of harmony or suffering that is created by a thought or an action. 
the more peace or well-being that stems from an action or view, the closer it is to the truth. The more confusion, pain, stress, anxiety it creates, the more we can assume an illusory view is at work. So now the difficulty, of course, with illusory views is that many of them are operating unconsciously. And so we are not aware of their presence. It's hard to question something, even harder to change something that we don't know exists, right? So this is why we meditate, to make aware and conscious what we can't see, what we don't know. We're trying to see closer to the truth. Robert Wright, uh, Robert Wright wrote in the same book, so we could say that feelings are true if the judgments they encode are accurate. If, say, the things they attract the organism to are indeed good for it. Or if the things they encourage the organism to avoid are indeed bad for it. We could say that feelings are false or perhaps illusory if they lead the organism astray, if following the feelings leads to things that are bad for the organism. So Robert goes on to explain that there are many things that we do to feel good temporarily, but because overall those choices don't lead to greater well-being, uh, they are false. And we all have our own examples of, 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 the, of this happening uh, in our own lives. that I could share, but I think I'll pause here for a moment and just see how this is landing and to ask also um, what illusions or non-truths have you noticed in your own life, in your own conditioning? What habits or views have you had about yourself or others or um, how things work? that somehow you saw more clearly uh, and you were that allowed you to change to to change your behavior or to not project on another person or to be more comfortable in a particular kind of situation has has your perception changed somehow can can you can you think of an example 